your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Scott Winship. Scott is the Walter B. Wriston Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and was previously a fellow at the Brookings Institute. Scott, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Oh, thanks for having me. So I want to start with a story that we're told by people like President Obama, Senator Elizabeth Warren, about the state of the American dream. And it goes something like this. The American dream is dying or dead, and although a handful of wealthy individuals are prospering, the middle class is stagnating, and poor Americans are suffering from declining opportunity and mobility. Now, one question is whether their proposed remedies would actually make life better for Americans, and we've talked a lot about that issue on this podcast, uh, and how, in fact, economic freedom is the critical factor in improving human lives. But there's two more basic questions which we really haven't looked at a great deal and that's first is this story true and second to the extent it is true what's the cause or causes so i want to delve into that and we'll break down these issues in a minute but i want to give listeners a sense of where you're coming from so could you give us a bird's eye view of your view of the state of the american dream sure uh, I tend to uh, have a much more optimistic view than uh, than a lot of folks on the left i uh, not too long ago, actually, uh, was a registered Democrat, um, and one of the reasons why I no longer am is is that my read of the data over time convinced me that the, the middle class especially, uh, and also the poor to some extent, um, the challenges facing them are not as great as certainly as, as someone like Senator Warren would have us believe, and, and when you overstate those problems, um, it leads to a uh, policy menu that uh, that's certainly overly uh, interventionist, um, and that uh, all, all of the benefits that that you hope to gain from from such policies don't come close to outweighing the costs uh, in terms of uh, unintended consequences and um, and distorting markets and things like that. Um, uh, so. I, I have believed for some time that the best data indicates that we're doing a lot better um, than than folks like uh, like the president and Senator Warren believe, both in terms of mobility uh, and in just in terms of living standards, how the middle class and the poor actually live. So let's talk about mobility for a second. So first of all, just what is mobility? What are we trying to assess and measure there? Hmm. So a big problem is that it's a, it's a complicated, multi-dimensional topic. So I, I think there are a bunch of different ways to think about mobility. You can you can think about income mobility or educational mobility or wealth mobility. Uh, you can think about mobility within a career or, or intergenerational mobility, uh, comparing kids to their parents. Um, what most people tend to focus on is income or earnings mobility and, and intergenerational mobility. And I think that is, is generally how I think about things as well. Um, there, there's yet another distinction, even if you kind of agree to focus on that, which is the distinction between absolute mobility on the one hand and relative mobility on the other hand. So absolute mobility you can think of as being concerned with whether 
adult children make more in absolute terms than their parents did. Um, and so that criterion doesn't take into account whether the rising tide has, has lifted all boats and so you know your parents were in the bottom and you were also in the bottom. Uh, if you're better off than your parents are, that's, that's absolute mobility. Um, so even though you're still poor, in real terms, you're better off than your parents were. And by that uh, definition of mobility, uh, it's it's a pretty it's pretty hard to tell a negative story there. Um, uh, about 80% of Americans actually uh, who are in middle age today are better off than their parents were. Um, if you look at uh, people today who are around 40 who grew up poor, um, something like 90% of them are better off than their parents were in real terms. So quite a bit of of absolute intergenerational mobility in the United States. Where uh, the, the left tends to focus less on that and more on relative mobility, and, and I don't want to diminish that, I think relative mobility is actually really important, um, and the story there uh, is less optimistic. So relative mobility is, regardless of, of whether a rising tide has lifted all boats, um, it's concerned about whether people who start at the bottom also end up at, at the bottom. And you might think that's less important than absolute mobility, but you, you could make an argument uh, that goes the other way, which essentially is that if, if poor kids aspire to, uh, to be professionals, for instance, um, but, but we have barriers to mobility such that they can only aspire to be uh, occupations that they're sort of uh, less, less well-paying or, or less secure, um, then I think that's a problem even uh, even if people end up better off than their parents. Um, now, by, by relative mobility, uh, a way of describing that is to say that if you start in the bottom fifth as a child, um, you have about a 40% chance of ending up in the bottom fifth yourself as an adult. Um, you only have uh, uh, something like a 33% chance of ending up in the middle class uh, or higher. Um, so I, I look at, at that figure, and, and it's, it's not uh, as much upward mobility as I would like to see. Uh, it's not as much as there are in some countries, uh, but it's not worsened over time. So, so often what you hear on the left is that mobility is worsening, and that's just simply not true. One thing that seems hard about that concept, though, is assessing what would be an attractive number, because mm. in a sense, it, you're dealing with a zero-sum game, right? So y you couldn't have 100% mobility right. uh, or because some people have to move down and other for others to move up in relative terms so how do you think about what is a, a good number no it's a, it's a fantastic question um, and I think it's the right question to ask uh, people like myself who, uh, who, who who would like to see that number uh, the percent who escape the bottom higher um, and I think you know, there, there's there's not one correct answer where you can say, oh, if it were if it were 25 percent, you know, that would be that would be great. Um, a lower bound, you know, is would would be 20 percent. If you, in other words, if you start at the bottom fifth, and your origins made no difference whatsoever, then then 20 percent of those folks would still be in the bottom fifth uh, in adulthood. 20 percent of them would be in the second fifth. 20 percent would be in the middle fifth, et cetera. Um, now. No society has ever uh, achieved that level of mobility, and uh, and given 
uh, all sorts of inequalities, uh, including biological inequalities that you can't imagine uh, ever achieving that sort of mobility. And, and frankly, we wouldn't want a world where uh, no matter what you did, uh, what, no matter what parents did for their kids, it was all for naught. And, and essentially, you know, where you end up is a coin flip. So, uh, so, so where between 20 and 40% uh, is the right number? You know, I, I tend to, uh, to default to a not entirely satisfying answer, which is uh, that if you know, there are countries like Canada, for instance, that, that, do, uh, that do quite a bit better than us, um, that it's reasonable to aspire uh, to, to achieve that level of upward mobility. Um, but, but it is it is true, as you say, that there's there's no way of, of looking at any particular number and saying, well, this number is is unjust uh, in, in some basic non-arbitrary way. Um, I just think that we ought to, the presumption ought to be um, that not everyone who starts in the bottom and ends up there uh, that, that that reflects uh, their preferences or their values. Um, that uh, that in a world with equal opportunity that 40% is the number that we would end up at. What do we know about the causes of mobility or the barriers to mobility? Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinarily important uh, question that we don't have, uh, we don't, we don't have a great understanding of. I mean, I think uh, there are obvious, uh, there are obvious factors like educational attainment, um, uh, family structure to, to a large extent, um, I, a couple of jobs ago, I was at the Pew Economic Mobility Project, and over a few years, we had a research agenda to uh, to try to answer that question. And so we made some headway, but other than other than kind of ticking off a number of things that are correlated with mobility, um, and in some cases building a stronger causal case, you know, it's really difficult to to rank order to say, well, education is really the most important thing, and then this is the next most important thing. Um, the the issues we looked at included um, neighborhood poverty. Um, I think that's a that's a really interesting factor that a lot of people um, don't necessarily consider. So if you uh, if you grow up in a neighborhood where uh, your neighbors um, are disproportionately poor, it does look like that affects your own mobility, um, and that is probably a story about culture, um, about sort of role modeling. Um, having a lack of, of people around you who can sort of point the way to success. Uh, it may be about local institutions and lack of employment opportunities. Um, so even, even where we're able to identify a correlation, it's not at all clear uh, what's driving that. You could sort of imagine liberal or conservative stories uh, that, are, that, that are equally likely to be true. Um, other things we looked at included um, savings. Uh, so it's certainly the case that Income mobility is correlated with parental wealth. Now, whether that's causal, I think is a is a is a real tough question to answer. Um, we looked. We had a report on incarceration that showed, uh, unsurprisingly, that uh, that spending time in prison uh, does not boost your upward mobility. Um, some suggestive evidence that can actually hurt even the mobility of your of your children. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of that, just because uh, a lot of felons presumably are not. Uh, are not boosting their their kids' outcomes if they're if they're actually at home. Um, so it's it's an important question that I don't think we we have 
really good answers to, and and the nature of the question is such that I'm not sure we'll ever have great answers about. Well, this is where we ought to really focus uh, our 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 policies on, um, you know, versus versus options two, three, or four. Now, you mentioned almost as an aside the fact that contrary to one of the things we've been told, at least I think what the last 30 or 40 years, mobility has been roughly stable. And that was really surprising to me when I was reading your research on that, because it seems that there's been a lot of increasing barriers to mobility, um, increasing regulation, larger tax burdens on business and so on, things that you would assume would make it easier to find a job and grow in a career and so my expectation would be that you would see mobility decreasing. Yeah, and I think that's the expectation that, that most people on the left also have, actually. And, and so this is an area where I think you, you sort of have broad cross-ideological uh, uh, gut feelings that, that are very similar. Um, and in fact, as I've talked to uh, policymakers, you know, I've found that uh, certainly even uh, conservative uh, policymakers feel like they, they, they need to tell their constituents that, that the American dream is in danger or that mobility is declining. So it, it's, it's very interesting that it's, that's not an, an ideological point. I think where uh, what I would say in response is that uh, there are a number of um, societal and economic trends that do work in the other direction. So for instance, I'm thinking about things like uh, the reduction of exposure to lead, for instance, in paint among young children, um, the decline in the teen pregnancy rate, which has just plummeted since uh, the 1980s, um, uh, the decline in discrimination, you know, whether that's by uh, race or gender, religion, um, certainly we've come a long way since the 1950s, 1960s uh, in that regard. Um, there are even, you know, if, if I think it's interesting when when liberals uh, say that they don't think mobility that, that they think mobility has fallen, um, you can point to policies that uh, where, where I don't think it's absolutely necessarily the case that they've improved mobility. But if you think, for instance, smaller class sizes are helpful, if you think uh, uh, broader access to early childhood education is important, if you think that uh, that health coverage for children is important. Those are areas where uh, where the trends work towards uh, increasing mobility. Um, I think the 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 societal change that has worsened the most, and I think that's worked uh, towards reducing mobility. Uh, as you say, the the regulatory issues um, are a big deal. Also, the family structure changes over time. You know, we we have as I said, less teen pregnancy, but we have a lot more uh, uh, out of wedlock uh, childbearing and single motherhood um, and divorce than in the past. And uh, the evidence there suggests that can, that can be important for kids as well. Um, before moving on from this, I, I want to raise this question, which is, so there's a lot of different statistical claims and factual claims made in these debates. And I think people, particularly young people um, who make up most of our audience, they don't really know what to believe or how to think about it. And so do you have any thoughts on what kinds of questions should a, a non-expert be asking or thinking about when trying to sort through these different arguments? Hmm. I mean, I think as a consumer uh, of 
of all of this research uh, or, or just a consumer of, of kind of conventional wisdom on the topic. Uh, what I look for in trying to find people who, who are trustworthy uh, when they're writing about these things is the extent to which they're trying to accurately portray the arguments on the other side um, and then to address those arguments. I think too much of what is written uh, you know, either doesn't doesn't deal with the counterarguments at all, or or it uh, caricaturizes them. Um, Any time that you see a writer who's willing to say this is this is what the other side says and this is why they're wrong, and uses numbers to back that up, uh, I think that's a good sign. Um, now the problem is, as you say, you know, you know these these debates are technical and they they hinge on uh, arcane data issues. Um, and so, in some sense, there's no substitute, I think, for 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 reading pretty uh, pretty closely a lot of this research. Um, another big problem. So, I I think there is a bias towards pessimism, um, and it's good to keep that in mind as you're reading about this stuff. So, whether you're um, a researcher, uh, which all of us you know, are doing what we're doing uh, because, in some way or another, we want to make the world a better place. Um, that sets a lot of people up. Uh, it puts them in a starting place where they're looking for problems and they're looking for the negative. Um, if you're a funder, uh, then you're looking uh, to solve problems also. And so in some sense, you're also, uh, to some extent, trying to find problems and trying to accentuate the negative. If you're a journalist, uh, you have you know, real market pressures um, to write about interesting things, and it's much more interesting to write about uh, crises and, uh, and societal problems than it is to, to write about things getting better. So just a, a range of parties uh, have incentives to, to portray things as being more negative than they are. Um, and so I think, I think it's worth reading everything with an eye towards that, and then to the extent people can learn about which data sources are are better than others um, uh, to the extent they can learn some of the nuances about how you measure, for instance, median incomes and trends in median incomes over time, poverty trends. Uh, that's certainly helpful too. And I, I try to write uh, to, to, to help my audience uh, be better consumers of this information uh, themselves when they go on to read other stuff. Yeah, and we'll definitely include links to some of your articles in the show notes. Let's talk about inequality for a moment, and in particular from one aspect. Um, obviously, a lot of people on the left have tried to make a big deal out of rising inequality, and yet they're a little bit flustered that Americans don't seem to care. And I think in large part that's because they care fundamentally about the quality of their lives, and so they're more interested in things like prosperity, jobs, and opportunity. And yet one of the arguments, and President Obama, among many others, made is that there is, they say, a connection between inequality and mobility as evidenced by the so-called Great Gatsby Curve, which you've written on. Mm. So can you explain briefly what that curve is and whether it actually proves that there is a causal link between inequality and mobility? Sure. Um, so the Great Gatsby Curve is essentially a chart that was introduced um, by Alan Kruger, who at the time was President Obama's uh, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, basically is one of his top uh, economic advisors. And what this chart showed uh, was a series of dots, uh, each of which represented a country. 
and on the x-axis of this chart, the horizontal uh, axis, it showed each country's um, level of inequality. And on the y-axis, going from uh, bottom to top, it showed each country's level of immobility. Um, so, uh, so essentially, and then, and then it drew uh, the best-fitting line through all of these data points. Um, and that best-fitting line uh, points basically from the bottom left to the upper right, um, which suggests that countries with more inequality also have more immobility. So, so inequality and less mobility tend to occur hand in hand. And the administration showed this chart um, to argue, as you said, that inequality actually causes uh, lack of mobility. And, and in fact, they argued that since, this, since the, the data that was shown in this chart uh, was collected, inequality in the United States has grown. Therefore, it must be the case that mobility has declined. Um, now, there were a number of problems with this chart to begin with. First and foremost, as, as anyone who's had a Stats 101 class will tell you, correlation is not causation. Um, so these countries that have uh, low inequality and, and high mobility um, differ from the United States in any number of ways other than their inequality level. It turns out that if you, if you make the same chart but replace income inequality with just how many people live in the country, uh, you, you essentially get a relationship that looks just as strong. Um, presumably, it's not the case that, uh, that as your, the population of your country grows, that, uh, that mobility actually mechanically falls. Um, and, and then it actually turns out um, more data uh, came out since Kruger presented the original chart, which shows that if you, if you measure mobility in such a way that you're only looking at this issue of relative mobility, so whether, um, uh, so where people's rankings are versus their parents. Um, when you do that, uh, Sweden and the United States actually have the same mobility levels, um, which is important because Sweden is a low inequality country and the U.S. is a, is a fairly high inequality country. So it looks like by this new measure of mobility, which is, uh, which is the way that the left likes to think about mobility, um, that there probably is no relationship between inequality and, and, and mobility. Not to put aside a causal relationship, there isn't even a, a correlation between the two. Um, and so there just, there just isn't much of a case there that, uh, that inequality and mobility are related. The other uh, important data point, I think, is that you know, inequality has risen in the United States over 30 or 40 years. Um, but as we've, as we've said, mobility has not declined. So again, um, if, if there was a strong relationship, then you would, you would think that mobility would have fallen over the last few decades as inequality increased. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, it, we were talking before about how to think about these issues. It's a good thing to really take seriously. Th there's a website I saw that takes two completely arbitrary mm -hmm. things and shows incredible links between them so you can have you know the amount of spaghetti consumed and the number of car accidents and you see these you know very tight seeming links and so that y you can't jump from a, a, a on the face of it convincing chart to m basically any conclusion right and essentially you know it's as if uh you know president obama gave a big speech saying spaghetti was the defining challenge of our time you know because of all the car accidents <laughs> that, it, that it causes um, um Let's turn to the middle class briefly. 
what are the claims we hear about middle class stagnation and how do they stack up against the evidence? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is again a, co a complex topic, um, but the, the basic problem that folks on the left have is that they start with the most readily available income figures, which, you know, are just the ones that are posted on the Census Bureau's webpage. Um, and and they make arguments as if those were the best figures. And in fact, they're not the best figures. They have a number of problems, um, a, a big one of which is uh, they combine uh, the elderly population with the working age population. And so as, as we've grown old, older as a society, we have more retirees over time, um, you, get, uh, you get a lot of people who, a growing share of people who don't have earnings at all. And, uh, and in some ways that puts downward pressure on, on the trend in income. Um, another issue is that uh, it, it, when you combine this aging issue with, um, with what's missing from, uh, from the official figures for income, which uh, that involves food stamps and um, health care benefits, whether it's from your employer or, for, or Medicare or Medicaid from the federal government, uh, those things aren't taken into account. Um, the inflation adjustment that is used by the Census Bureau, which I think they're required to use it by law because it's, it's how they update um, poverty figures, for instance, and other income figures that, that determine eligibility for, for specific federal programs. Um, but it's been shown over time that they overstate uh, how much inflation has grown over time, and therefore they understate how much real incomes have grown over time. Uh, household size has declined over time. So essentially, uh, let's pretend that income didn't change at all. If, if households are smaller, that means that a given amount of income actually goes further uh, within a home. Um, and so that's another factor that's, that's not incorporated into the official adjustment. Um, when you look at, at sources that, that make these fixes, um, and, and my favorite comes from the Congressional Budget Office, which is the nonpartisan uh, agency that scores bills for Congress um, and is required by law you have to you know, play it straight down the middle. Um, their figures show that median incomes uh, since 1979 have risen by uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent, depending on uh, on how you deal with some of these measurement issues. Uh, but that's you know that's not a lot compared to what's happened at the very top. Um, incomes there have risen a lot more than that. And it's less than, than, than the increase in incomes during the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, but a 40% increase uh, versus our counterparts um, you know, 35, 40 years ago is not something that any of us would be indifferent about. Um, so it's, it ends up working out to being several thousand dollars uh, better, um, not because we're working more, um, just because we're we're better off over time, um, and and you see a similar increase for say the the bottom fifth of the population since 1979. Um, now again, it's complicated. The 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 decade of the 2000s um, income growth uh, did slow during that period. Um, you can look at something like men's earnings, uh, which really has stagnated over time. Uh, I think there are good reasons for, for why it has. Um, but in terms of, of household incomes, 
uh, there's just been a lot more growth than anyone on the left wants to acknowledge. Um, well, that sort of leads right into my final question, which is, uh, if we look at all of these issues and the broader claims about the American dream, the left holds up the 1950s and the post-World War II era often as an ideal where inequality was low, economic growth was high, and enjoyed by the vast majority of Americans, and then they allege the government was much more interventionist with really high taxes, union-friendly regulation, and so on. And what are your thoughts on how these claims match up against reality and whether we should hold this period as a model for our own times? And if you don't think it's a great model, what direction should we be headed in? Hmm. Well, I, I, the first thing I would say is that I think the left tends to get um, the causation wrong uh, when they talk about the 50s and, 19, and 1960s. Uh, Paul Krugman, I think, is particularly guilty of this. The reason that we were able to have uh, all of the new government programs that we had and um, uh, that, 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 for instance, great society liberalism was tolerable or, or even popular for a bit was because we had such strong income growth. It wasn't that the that the government programs produce the income growth. Um, when a nation is rich and getting richer, it feels more generous and is willing to, uh, to, to do more to help those in need. Now, why, why we got so much richer so, so quickly, um, I think is still in dispute. Um, it's certainly the case that productivity growth uh, was a lot higher um, during the middle of the 20th century than it's been since 1970. And that's been true in the United States, but it's also been true in the developed, uh, the developed world. Um, it's, there's just been this slowdown that's probably related to uh, industrialization, um, uh, and and that is the main reason why income growth was was so much faster uh, during the mid 20th century. Um, you know, this was also a period before. Uh, before global trade really took off in, in terms of trade with developing countries. That's certainly put some downward pressure, I think, on the wages of less skilled Americans. Um, and if we can't, over time, increase our skill levels and improve, um, improve our educational system, um, then, then those who don't get a lot of formal schooling are going to continue uh, experiencing stagnation, I think. Um, but it's just, it's not the case that we're ever going to be able to get back to the 1950s and 60s. Um, and to think that, to think that we can, if we just did this, this policy differently, or if we returned to, you know, the expansion of government that we saw during the Great Society is just fantasy. Um, now where we, where we move forward from here, uh, I think is that we've got to really encourage, uh, kids to invest in, in their human capital and their own skills, um, Women have have been increasing their college graduation rates and their and their higher education rates uh, pretty steadily over time, uh, but for men that's that's been much less the case. And so there, for some reason, uh, boys and young men are are missing the signal that uh, that you really need to get as much education for yourself as you can. Um, so we've got to keep promoting that through policy. I think we've got to uh, continue to. Um, uh, to try to change the aspirations of people who do grow up in poverty to make them uh, think that, that if they invest in themselves, they, they will do well. And so I think building on the lessons of welfare reform in the 1990s is something that would, that would help those kids. Um, expecting uh, that parents will work um, and, and maybe making uh, work pay uh, as, a, as a trade-off 
I think has proven to be a pretty successful policy. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I don't think going after the incomes of the top 1% is going to do much to help um, to help those further down. I think a lot of the pessimistic accounts around uh, job polarization, for instance, and the hollowing out of the middle class that Senator Warren likes to talk about, I think those are just completely overblown. We're going to continue to experience uh, economic growth over time, uh, and the, the more people that we can uh, help adapt to a global economy where, um, where skills really are demanded uh, here in the United States, um, then the more broadly shared I think our prosperity will be. My guest today has been Scott Winship. Scott, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I want to highlight this issue Scott and I discussed about how non-experts should think about these questions. And the first thing to say is that these questions are really, really hard. And whenever someone presents you with some graph or statistic and tells you, here's what's happening with mobility or inequality or incomes, you should be really skeptical. And that should be true even if what he's telling you fits with your political views. Reality is complex, and as Scott pointed out, just because there are things that say make it harder for poor people to rise, such as government regulations, there are also forces working in the other direction. And it takes a lot of work to be able to identify how all those forces are interacting and playing out in reality. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be agnostic about whether or not government should be intervening in the economy or redistributing wealth. Part of the power of philosophy is that we can reach broad principles concerning what promotes human life, principles that are validated by reference to information available to all of us and that don't depend on statistics or the latest CBO study. We can know, for instance, know rationally and scientifically, that a society based on individual rights and voluntary exchange is better for human life than a society in which we're at the mercy of government coercion. But that doesn't tell us, for instance, whether in a mixed economy like America today, a general trend of increasing regulation will necessarily show up in the data as reduced mobility. There's other factors at work, and I think what came across in this interview is that we have to be mindful of those. Caution is particularly important when we start prognosticating about the future. How exactly will the rising burden of the welfare state affect the economy? On what time scale? Those are challenging questions. And while it's important to think about the possible outcomes of our present course, we end up discrediting ourselves if we confidently predict catastrophe by this date or some other. So I want to stress Scott's point. To have a real view on many of these issues, you can't just read a column by Paul Krugman or a blog post by Don Watkins. You need to familiarize yourself with the major claims and arguments made by all sides, and you have to pay special attention to the quality of the questions being asked and whether or not a person is honestly grappling with the arguments. It's not easy, but there's no shortcuts. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 